And will you remain standing with me as we come now and read God's holy, living, active word. Our passage this morning for the sermon from Acts chapter 13, and I'll be reading verses 26 through 43. This again is Paul's sermon to the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. He says in verse 26, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. And though they found in Him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of Him, they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a tomb. But God raised Him from the dead. And for many days He appeared to those who had come up with Him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now His witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that He raised Him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And therefore He says also in another psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his father and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And all of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated this morning, and let's pray together as we come and consider God's Word. Again, our Father, we are grateful to us, to you, that you have spoken to us through your Word. Father, we praise You that You have revealed Yourself to us. And we ask this morning as we come to consider these words that are Your words, that are breathed out by You, that are not just the imaginations or ruminations of mere men, 
but are the words of the living God. We pray, Father, that as we consider them, that they would come to us with living and active power, that Your Holy Spirit, who is responsible for these words, would also be with us in reading them and in understanding them, that He would give us help, Father, and illuminate the truth of Your Word to us, that we might not only know it, but trust it. And that not only in trusting it, Father, that we might be transformed by it. And that we might not just be hearers of Your Word, but more and more become doers of Your Word who do trust You and who are transformed by Your Word in our lives and do live our lives more and more for the cause of Your glory. So, Father, be with us this morning and give us Your grace and Your help and glorify Yourself in Your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, over the past few weeks... As we have continued on in our study of the book of Acts together, we've been digging into this sermon of Paul's that he preached at the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. And it's a sermon, you remember, that was directed both to the ethnically Jewish worshipers that would gather there in the synagogue, and also, even as he refers to here in verse 26, also to those Gentile converts to Judaism who had come to put their faith in the God of the Old Testament Scriptures. And it is the God of the Old Testament Scriptures that Paul is now proclaiming to them. And he is saying that this God has sovereignly orchestrated all of the, all of the events of human history to come together in a glorious culmination in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what we looked at a few weeks uh, ago together. And he has said to us that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. And we saw that what that means is that Jesus is God the Son, fully God, and also at the same time the distinct person of God the Son who was incarnate in the man Jesus Christ. And that it is in him in whom all of the promises and all of the prophecies of God are gloriously fulfilled. That's what we looked at last week. And that brings us to consider Paul's third main point in his sermon today, which is that all of the redeeming purposes of God are gloriously fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is doing in this sermon is bringing history and doctrine, theology. He's bringing those two things together in order to focus on the centrally important person of Jesus, historically and doctrinally. So Paul is not only showing how God has sovereignly orchestrated all of the events of history to culminate in the person of Jesus, he's showing us also why doctrinally God did that. He's showing us that the whole hope of the gospel is absolutely rooted and grounded in what God has actually done in history. And that's very, very important for us to understand. In the early part of the 20th century, Professor J. Gresham Machen of Princeton Seminary said this. He said, talking about two phrases, he said, the phrase, Jesus Christ died is history. It's a a record of what happened historically. And then on the other hand, he said the phrase, Jesus Christ died for our sins, is doctrine. 
It speaks to us of why Jesus Christ died. And Machen says, without these two elements, historical and theological, being joined together in an absolutely indissoluble union, there is no Christianity. You understand what he means? He means that on the one hand, Christianity is a body of doctrines, a body of beliefs that we hold to be true by faith, chiefly about the person and the work of Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. But, also, Christianity is not just beliefs. It's beliefs that are rooted and grounded in historical events, in historical facts. It's not just mythology, in other words, like other world religions. It's an actual historical record of what the one sovereign God actually did in time, in history, in the lives of flesh and blood people in order to bring about what Paul calls the fullness of time in Galatians and Ephesians. And what he means by that is the grand and glorious eternal purpose, plan, decree of God, which God has purposed since before the foundations of the world, in eternity past, when the Father determined that He was going to send the Son, and the Son determined that He was going to come to not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but to empty Himself in time, in history, and to take upon Himself the form of a servant, and to subject Himself so fully to the will of the Father that He would, in fact, become obedient to the point of death on a Roman cross for us, for our sins, in order to pay the full price of all of our sin, so that we could be redeemed and set free from the horrible bondage of sin and death and condemnation and be reconciled to God for all of eternity future. So see, if it's all just, if it's all just mythology, if it's all just ideas, if it's all just stories that are meant to inspire us and motivate us, like Aesop's fables in a particular moral or, or ethical sort of direction, then it's not Christianity. And it's of zero value to us eternally. It can do us no more good than any of the other religions or philosophies in this world in terms of reconciling us to God and guaranteeing us an eternal hope. If the message of the eternally begotten Son of God becoming incarnate as a man in order to shed His blood on a cross, if it's not actual history, if it didn't actually happen, then there isn't any hope for mankind, for any of us. But because it did all happen, because God the Father and God the Son did in eternity past, covenant together to accomplish the redemption of a multitude of sinners. And because God the Son did become incarnate as a man, and did shed His blood on the cross, and did rise from the dead on the third day, and did ascend into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of His Father, and does make intercession for us, then in Him we have 
ultimate, and we have everlasting hope. And that hope is an absolutely sure and firm anchor for our souls because it's not just tethered to ideas or philosophies that are up to us to implement. It's tethered to what God has done. And who can possibly undo what God has done? Who can stay God's hand? Who can thwart God's eternal plans? Or put a stop to God's eternal purposes? And understanding that, and learning that more fully, and remembering that often, and trusting that, and resting in that is so critically important for us to have hope in this world and to our ongoing growth in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so, here, look at verse 27 of Acts chapter 13. Paul begins to bring all of this great glorious truth that he's been preaching and that we've been meditating on for the past couple weeks. He begins to bring it all home now to show us the main point to show us how, because it's true, that in Christ Jesus, all of God's sovereign purposes for human history have in fact come to a glorious culmination, because it's true that in Christ Jesus, all of God's divine promises are gloriously fulfilled, then it is absolutely and necessarily true that in Christ Jesus... All of the redemptive work that God has eternally decreed to accomplish is in fact accomplished. In verse 27, here's how Paul turns the corner and brings it home. He anticipates in his mind two questions that the hearers of this sermon that he's preaching in the synagogue are likely to ask at this point. And the answers to these two questions that he anticipates are full of such wonderful hope and comfort and encouragement. Now the first one is this. The first question is this. It's a question that the Jewish people were likely to ask. As Paul's preaching and saying Jesus Christ is the clear and obvious fulfillment of every prophecy and every promise that God ever made in the Old Testament Scriptures, they're likely to be asking themselves a certain question. And they're still asking this question, in fact, today. If Paul is right, if Jesus really is the long-promised Messiah, then why didn't the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem recognize Him as the Messiah? If it's all so clear, if He so obviously fulfilled all those prophecies, if the Old Testament Scriptures so clearly pointed to Him, if the the promises of God that, that He made in the Old Testament are so clearly fulfilled in Him, then why didn't the experts in the Scriptures, why didn't they get it? And if, if we really understand everything that we've seen over the past few weeks, then we understand the answer to that question. If we understand especially how absolutely clear all of those Old Testament scriptures and prophecies were and how precisely they were fulfilled, predicting and proclaiming and and promising centuries in advance that a child would be born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem, 
who was a descendant of Abraham and of David, who would ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, who would be betrayed for a very specific amount of money, who would be rejected by the ones in charge of the temple, who would be despised and forsaken of men, who would be nailed to a tree and lifted up like the bronze serpent in the wilderness, who as he hung there on that tree, people would wag their heads at him in reproach, whose clothing would then be divided by his executioners, who would quote Psalm 22 and Psalm 38 as his own dying words on the cross, whose side would be pierced with a spear as he died, who would be buried in a rich man's tomb as Isaiah 53 predicted, who would be raised from the dead in fulfillment of Isaiah 55 and Psalm 16 and other Old Testament Scriptures. I mean, if we understand how clear these ancient prophecies and promises were, and how precisely Jesus fulfilled them all, then there's really only one answer to the question of why the rulers in Jerusalem didn't accept Him as their Messiah, right? What's the answer? Well, it wasn't because... It wasn't as plain as the noses on their faces. It was plain and clear and obvious. It wasn't because they were stupid. It wasn't because they were intellectually or mentally slow. The only reason why the Jewish rulers in Jerusalem did not recognize Jesus as their long promised Messiah was because of their rock-hard, sin-darkened hearts and minds. Because this is what sin does. This is what sinful people do. In their sin, people deny the clear and obvious truth of God Himself. In their sin, people suppress truth at all costs. In their sin, people call darkness light. In their sin, people call evil good. In their sin, people perpetuate evil over and over in spite of its obviously destructive impact on this world and on their lives because they love it in their sin. In their sin, people distort reality because there is this ferocious tendency in the heart of every sinful human being to do that, to twist, to distort, to pervert reality in order to try and make it conform to our own fleshly desires. That's what sinful people do. And that's why people insist that there is no God. It's why people insist that everything in the universe inexplicably came from nothing for no particular reason. It's why more and more our government thinks that this time socialism is going to work. It's going to fix everything. Even though it's been such a wretched failure every other time it's been tried anywhere in the past. It's why the world's current solutions to racial injustice are so racist and unjust. It's why... Right now, 
There is a biological male competing in the Olympics for New Zealand this year in the category of women's weightlifting. Yep. It's not because any of those things actually make any sense. Because objectively, they don't. And that's not hard to see. But they make sense to people who want their fallen, sinful hearts to have what they want. And who are willing to try to redefine, literally, the definition of reality in order to suit their own fallen desires. And it's easy to point out those kinds of big glaringly obvious examples of people exchanging truth for lies in the world when unbelief goes so far off the rails that things just get completely ridiculous like they are getting now. But I would encourage all of us as Christians to recognize that there are probably certain ways... In our own hearts, in our own minds, that the residues of that fleshly, truth-suppressing, reality-distorting tendency still cause us, sometimes, to try and bend reality to suit our own desires. Maybe we do it in the ways that we relate to other people in our lives. Maybe we do it in embracing some of the positions that we hold to so tenaciously in our minds. Simply this, and then we'll move on. How sure are we that the things that we're so insistent about are really rooted in absolute, objective, God-created, God-defined truth? And that we're not just letting our desires or our fears, or our prideful need to be right, or our need to prove the other side wrong. How sure are we that we're not letting impulses like that bias our interpretations and opinions about things in this world? And then to call those positions righteous, And true, like the Pharisees did, when actually they had very little to do with righteousness and truth and much more to do with the sinful pride of their own hearts. And that's exactly what the rulers in Jerusalem did when Jesus came onto the scene. In spite of all of the clear and obvious evidence that God had supplied for centuries and millennia, that all absolutely screamed that Jesus was obviously the long-awaited Messiah, God in the flesh, Emmanuel. They didn't accept it because they didn't want it. They twisted and they distorted God's Word. They misinterpreted His law. They misinterpreted prophecy. They misinterpreted reality because they did not want to accept what it all clearly revealed. Because what it clearly revealed is the desperate wickedness of the human heart. And our desperate need to be set free. 
not from whatever we insist is, is, is the big problem in our lives or is oppressing us or other people are doing to us. What we need to be set free from first and foremost is the relentless bondage of our own sin. Every human being needs to come to the place in their lives where they stop saying the big problem is what's happening to me and start saying the big problem is me. Let's see, the Old Testament screams that. Jesus came preaching that. John the Baptist before Him. You need to repent and believe because the kingdom of God is at hand. The problem's you. But in their own prideful refusal to admit their own pervasive sinfulness, the rulers in Jerusalem not only twisted and distorted God's word to suit their own desires, they murdered the king of glory. And so Paul, who had been one of them, remember, now, having been crucified and raised to newness of life and transformed by the power of God's grace, now Paul proclaims to these Jews in Pisidian Antioch that the reason why the rulers in Jerusalem failed to accept Jesus as the Messiah was because of their own rock-hard, sinfully darkened hearts and minds. And in that sin, they condemned Him. And by condemning Him, so ironically and so gloriously, they ended up fulfilling the very prophecies about Him that in their sin they had failed so miserably to understand. And that was the second question that Paul anticipated and and is answering in these verses. It's this. Well, okay, if they rejected the Messiah, then doesn't that mean that God's purpose in sending Him is, is nullified, is thwarted? If He was supposed to come and deliver Israel, and if Israel rejected Him and murdered Him, then wasn't the big grand plan a big failure? And the answer is, well, of course not. Because His rejection was the big grand plan. In all of God's glorious sovereignty. We all know the awesome words of the prophecy in Isaiah 53. We talked about them last week. We meditate them, meditate on them all the time, and especially in the springtime as we're preparing to celebrate Good Friday. Isaiah 53 clearly prophesied that Jesus would be forsaken, would be despised, would be crushed, would be pierced. Psalm 118 clearly prophesied that the builders would reject the stone that would end up being the cornerstone of a gloriously new temple that God was building. Though they found in Him no guilt worthy of death, Paul says there in verse 28, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. And by doing that, by condemning Him, they ended up fulfilling the prophets. Paul says in verse 27. See, this was the divinely decreed, sovereignly orchestrated plan all along. Because sin inevitably leads to suffering. In God's perfect, unchanging justice, 
Sin requires death. That's how serious sin is. And in God's perfect and unchanging eternal love, the Father and the Son determined together, agreed together, planned together, covenanted together that the Son would come and bear the full weight of the wrath of God upon Himself and suffer as a servant for us so that instead of us being condemned to everlasting death, we would be given life everlasting in Him instead. So they rejected and they condemned Jesus because of their hard-hearted sin. And by rejecting Him in the glorious sovereignty of God, not only did they not derail God's plan, they accomplished it. Because Jesus, who was put to death by the hands of godless men, died according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. As Peter preached way back in Acts 2.23. And all of it, as we saw last week, the betrayal of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the sour wine they gave Him on the cross to drink, the spear that pierced His side, the cries that came off of His lips at the end of His physical life, all of it was planned from eternity past. All of it was prophesied. All of it was fulfilled. Even, glory be to God, even through the wickedness of those who rejected and condemned and executed Him. It's amazing that as those Old Testament scholars who had read and studied God's Word so much, as they delivered Jesus over to Pilate, because they couldn't kill Him themselves. The Jews knew, we we can't kill this man. We want Him dead, but we can't kill Him. So how can we get Him killed? We can deliver Him over to Pilate. We can give Him over to the Romans. And how do the Romans kill people? They crucify people, and that's what they demanded. And it's amazing that as they did that, they didn't recognize how astonishingly they were in fact fulfilling prophecy. Because the crucifixion was prophesied in the Old Testament, even though in the Old Testament they didn't even know what crucifixion was. There wasn't crucifixion when the Old Testament was written. It's not a Jewish thing. It's not a Jewish form of execution. And yet it was foretold. It was pictured in the Old Testament Scriptures like Psalm 22 and Numbers chapter 21. Jesus' burial also should have been an obvious sign to them that God was fulfilling Scripture in His Son. Because normally, people who were crucified in the Roman Empire were crucified because that was the execution that was reserved for the lowest class of criminals, the scum of the earth. And so after they crucified people, they would just take them and throw their bodies into a mass grave. They wouldn't give them any kind of honorable burial. But that's not what happened to Jesus. Jesus was laid in a tomb that a rich man bought in fulfillment of Isaiah's words in Isaiah 53, verse 9. So see, God's purposes, so far from being thwarted by these hard-hearted, wicked rulers in Jerusalem, were meticulously accomplished. 
down to the detail, in, even in the death, even in the burial of Jesus. Including, and this is especially important, obviously, in terms both of the proof that Jesus is God and is the Messiah, and of His accomplishment of God's redeeming purposes, everything was fulfilled, including His resurrection from the dead. Verse 30, they put Him in a tomb, but God raised Him from the dead. And there was proof that he had been raised from the dead. Verse 31, for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses to the people. Hundreds of witnesses, 500 people, Paul would say over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, saw him. Men and women who saw him die and then days later saw him alive. And all of their testimonies corroborated one another to establish proof that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And all of this, all that God did in history, in Jesus' birth and life and death and burial and resurrection, all of it is the glorious accomplishment of the redemptive purposes of God. It's not just God saying, look, I prophesied something and now it came true. End of story. It came true for a reason. It's not only the fulfillment of promise and prophecy, it's the accomplishment of redemptive purpose. And so Paul says, in all of these things, we bring you the good news. Verse 32, we bring you the gospel. That what God promised to the fathers, this he has historically fulfilled and done to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. The death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of it all. And it is proof positive that he is, in fact, the only begotten Son of God, as we saw two weeks ago. Now Paul goes on, verse 34 through 38, he goes on to show these two things, which are especially proven by Jesus' resurrection. First, Jesus did prove himself to be the begotten Son of God by his resurrection. Because only the power of God, who the Son of God is, could accomplish that. The begotten Son of God, who is God the Son, could never be subjected in any ultimate way to the dominion of death. The perfect God-man could never be subjected to corruption or to decay as a result of death. Well, David had already proclaimed that clearly in Psalm 16, right? You will not let your Holy One see corruption. And ultimately, he can't just be talking about himself, and Paul proves it here, right? Because David did die. And David did see corruption. Verse 36, David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, died, was laid with his fathers, And saw corruption. His body decayed. But the one Psalm 16 is really talking about. 
the one whom God raised up, Jesus, did not see corruption and lives forevermore. So, see, the scriptures clearly promised the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus clearly fulfilled those promises. And most importantly, those promises and their fulfillment are the accomplishment of the gospel, the good news that Israel had been waiting for for so long, and the good news that all of mankind for all of history so desperately and absolutely needs. And what is that good news? What is it that God decreed to do in eternity past before the foundations of the world were laid? What is it that all of these promises and prophecies were pointing to like a big giant neon sign? What is it that Israel and all of mankind so desperately needed that God did, that God accomplished in the death and the burial and the resurrection of the only begotten Son of God who is God the Son? Well, it was a freedom. That's what we need. We need freedom. But it was not that we needed a a freedom from political or social oppression. It was not that we needed to be freed from earthly poverty. It was not that we needed to be freed from loneliness or low self-esteem or depression or sadness. All of these are versions of the gospel that have been perpetrated on the church for generations and still today. And those kinds of things, some of them at least, most of them probably are real needs, right? There is political oppression. There is social oppression and injustice in this world. There is poverty in this world. People are lonely. People are sad. Because circumstances are hard. God cares about things like that. We ought to care about things like that since the compassion that God had for us in sending His Son to us ought to fill us with compassion for anyone who is truly suffering in this world. But the only begotten Son of God did not take the form of a servant and suffer and die primarily for those kinds of needs. He didn't die. He didn't shed his blood. He didn't take the form of a servant for whatever felt needs we think are our greatest needs. He died for the forgiveness of sins, Paul preached to these people in verse 38. Not to free you from the Romans. Not to free you from political oppression and and, and ethnic obscurity. He died to set us free from what we could never free ourselves from by the law of Moses, Paul says there in verse 39. Now, what did he mean by that? What's the law of Moses got to do with it? Listen, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. This same Paul says this in Galatians 3.13, and he's going to write these words not long after he preached this sermon in Pisidian Antioch. He's going to write the book of Galatians in which he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written in the law, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 
Think about that verse. What is the curse of the law? The law of God, the law that God revealed to Moses and through Moses to his people. What's the curse of the law? Well, it isn't the law itself. It's not that the law itself is a curse. Because in Romans chapter 7 and verse 12, Paul says that the law is holy. And the commandments of God are holy and righteous and good. So the curse of the law in Galatians 3.13 doesn't mean the law itself is a curse or is cursed. It means the curse that the holy, righteous, good law of God brings upon us. And how does the law of God, revealed through Moses in the Old Testament, how does it bring a curse on us? It does that because it reveals the sin that is in us. And that's what it did all throughout the Old Testament, right? That that was God's main purpose in giving it, in fact. The law that God revealed wasn't given by God in order to supply them with a way to be righteous enough by keeping the law for God in all of his perfect holiness to accept them and to approve of them. I mean, on the one hand, if they had kept God's law perfectly with zero defects ever in their words, in their deeds, in their thoughts, in the intentions of their hearts, in their attitudes, in their desires, if they had have been perfect and holy like God himself is perfect and holy, then of course God would have accepted and approved of them, right? Because God is just and God is fair and God is true. But they didn't do that. They didn't even begin to do that. Because they couldn't, and God knew it, and ultimately he gave the law in order to prove it. And show them why. Not to give them a way to be good enough to earn his everlasting approval. But to give them a way to see how desperately sinful in the deepest recesses of their hearts and lives They really were. Because when people who are sinful to the core, and all people in Adam are sinful to the core, aren't we? There are none who are righteous. No, not one. Romans 3, verse 10. And that's no novel teaching in the New Testament, right? Paul's quoting the Old Testament scriptures there in Romans 3. And the entire Old Testament is a running record that it's true that there are zero righteous descendants of Adam who live in this world. Solomon himself summed it up in 1 Kings chapter 8 when he said, there is no man who does not sin. We are desperately wicked, God's word teaches us. And when people who are sinful to the core come up against the law of God, which is holy and righteous and good... What happens? What do we do with it in our sinfulness? Well, we fall short, right? At best, if you're going to keep God's law in sinfulness, you're going to keep it very imperfectly and usually only outwardly when inwardly our hearts are motivated by pride and greed. And so whatever law-keeping we're doing is 
sinful law-keeping. But also when sinful people come up against God's holy law, mostly what they want to do is to suppress it and to resist it and to deny it and to rebel against it and to twist it and distort it and pervert it and exchange it for lies and for immorality because the heart of sinfulness is a heart of rejection of God as God. I don't want him to be my God. I don't want him to be Lord of my life. I will not allow him and concede and submit to him as my sovereign ruler. That's what the heart of sinfulness is. And so when God says to a sinner like that, when God says, do this, what sinners do is like petulant little children, they fold their arms and they wrinkle up their noses and say, no, I'm not going to do it, God. I'm going to do it my way. Because in our sin, we want to be God. We want to do things our way. And so we all, like sheep, go astray from our great, awesome, glorious creator and God and Lord and shepherd. And that's exactly where every form of injustice, every form of suffering, every form of immorality, every form of misery that is in this world, that's exactly where it all comes from human sinfulness that's what paul means in galatians 3 13 when he talks about the curse of the law it's the curse of god's condemnation it's the curse of alienation from god it's the curse of enmity with god it's the curse of guilt that every human being knows and is desperately trying to either deny or do something to cope with and compensate for. It's the curse of shame. It's the curse of fear. It's the curse of every consequence of sin in this world and in our lives that is causing it to decay before our very eyes. It's the curse of death. And here in Acts 13, Paul is preaching what every human being in the world so desperately needs to hear, whether we know it or not, he's preaching that there is no possibility of freedom from the terrible curse that comes on us as God's holy law exposes our desperately sinful hearts. There is no freedom from that curse to be found by keeping the law. By trying to be good in our own strength and by our own efforts. That's what Paul means when he says, by him. By who? By Jesus. Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could never be freed by the law of Moses. What he's saying is you cannot possibly ever dig yourself out of the infinitely deep pit of the law's curse by keeping the law. Because you'll only ever keep the law sinfully, pridefully, not in order to please God, and imperfectly. You'll never be holy like he is holy. And all of your efforts to be good 
All of your efforts to be righteous, all of your efforts to keep the law will only expose more and more of your sin and you'll only dig the pit that you're in deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's what they were doing, right? All throughout the Old Testament. All the way up to and including and especially the Pharisees in Jesus' day. The experts in the law. The ones who had it all memorized. The rulers of the Jewish people, they were rigorously keeping the law, but only in the desperate pride of their sinful hearts. When in reality, they hated the God who gave the law, and the proof of it was that when he sent his only begotten son, they murdered him. And guess what? Had we not been delivered from the bondage of that same sin, we would murder him too. We all drove the nails in. And we'd do it all over again had he not saved us and crucified us and raised us to newness of life. So instead of freeing themselves from the curse, the religious rulers of the day, keeping the law in the pride of their own sinful hearts, were just wedging themselves more tightly under the curse. And again, it's not just them, right? It's all human beings. It's all of us. We're all doing the same things in our lives. We're all patterning ourselves ultimately after Adam and Eve's first attempt all the way back in the garden to get out from underneath the curse of guilt and shame and fear that they felt in the garden the moment that they sinned against God. What did they do? They sewed fig leaves together in order to cover themselves. Pathetic, right? It could not deal with their shame. It could not cover their guilt. It was wholly inadequate. Their sin required nothing less than death, not fig leaves, not plants. Because that's how serious sin is. All of it. Covering their sin was something that they could not possibly do. God did it for them, didn't he? In the garden, by covering them with the skins of the first sacrificial animals who had to die in order for those skins to be provided, those clothes to be provided. Adam and Eve sowed pathetic Inadequate fig leaves and all of us, every human being born of Adam ever since, we've all always been compulsively addicted to sowing our own pathetic, inadequate coverings for our guilt, for our shame before God. Our own good deeds, our own self-righteousness, our own attempts, our own efforts, whatever kind of righteousness we think we can conjure up that we imagine makes us good enough and safe enough to stand before God and pretend that our shame is dealt with and that he's not going to destroy us in his holy wrath. The fig leaves of our good works cannot ever possibly free us from the law's true curse. Keeping the law of God cannot possibly free us from the law's curse. No matter how hard we try, 
We only dig that pit deeper and we only wedge ourselves further beneath the horrible curse of guilt and shame and fear and death. And so, the good news. Marvelously, Paul proclaims that in Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, who is God the Son, in him God has done what we could never ever do for ourselves. Because he's love. Because he's mercy. Here's how Paul's going to put it in Romans chapter 8. For the law of the Spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not ever do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law, which was death, might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. God did what we couldn't do by keeping the law. We couldn't do it, but God did it. We couldn't do it because in the weakness of our sinful flesh, we don't keep the law. And when we try, we only do it sinfully. So God the Son came in the likeness of our flesh and condemned sin for us. How? By dying on the cross. By satisfying the requirement of death that sin demands. He came and he destroyed the curse. How? By becoming a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 says, Because the law prescribes death for sin. The law says cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so Jesus became a curse for us in our place. And by doing that, he freed us from the curse of the law. The curse of guilt, the curse of shame, the curse of fear, the curse of sin, the curse of condemnation. You're free from it all. The curse of alienation from God. The curse of death. You're free from it all. We're going to park it right there this week. We're going to park it right here in the shade of this great freedom that Paul proclaims to be ours. Through faith in what Jesus has done for us. The rest of this chapter includes a very sober and sobering warning And then two very different responses to this great gospel that Paul and Barnabas encountered. And we're gonna we're gonna wait and save that for next week. But but for today, can we just understanding this great good news, this great gospel, as Paul has proclaimed it, to be fulfilled and accomplished by the one who is the only begotten Son of God? Can we just rest our minds and our hearts in this great glory of this gospel? In this awesome freedom that Jesus has accomplished for us by his own death and resurrection and in the great hope that we have and that we can revel in and rejoice in because of who he is and what he's done. Do you ever, as a Christian, Do you ever struggle with temptation or with guilt or with shame or with fear or with doubt or with the discouragement and depression that comes from feeling like you're not good enough and with wondering whether or not you're really his child? 
You ever struggle with any of those things? If you're a Christian, you do. I would dare say if you never struggle with temptation, with shame, with guilt, then you're not a Christian. Because Christians know their sin and hate it. And struggle with it all the time. And struggle with the consequences of it and the reality of it and the ugliness of it and the shame of it all the time. And sometimes that leads to struggling with doubt and and fear and, and wondering whether or not we truly belong to God because of this sin that remains in us. You struggle with that? Sure you do. If you really are his child, sure you do. I do. Of course we struggle. We struggle with feelings of unworthiness because we know that in ourselves we are unworthy to be called children of God. Because our fig leaves are lame. They can't begin to cover our shame before God and deep down we know it. But God can. And God has through the sacrifice of his only begotten son. So listen, whenever you're struggling with shame, with guilt, with temptation, with fear, with doubt, just focus your mind on these unfathomably majestic truths that we have been drinking pretty deeply of these past several weeks. And and watch what God does with them to your soul. The eternal, triune, unchangeable, uncreated, holy God. Before anything existed besides him. Before there was matter. Before there was a universe. Before any created thing. Before the foundations of the world were laid. Before let there be light. Before the dawn of time, in eternity past, God the Father and God the Son agreed together, determined together, covenanted together in an unbreakable bond to redeem you, to redeem you. Through the incarnation and the life and the perfect obedience and death and resurrection in history of the Son. I mean, just fathom what kind of love that is. He has loved you since eternally before you ever were. He knew you. From eternity past. He knew from eternity that he would make you in his image. He knew from eternity that you would be born into this world. He knew from eternity that you would go astray from him. In myriad ways. In all the ways that you are aware of. And even in ways that you have not come to be aware of. In the sin of your heart and in the sin of your life. He knew from eternity that the begotten Son would come and die for all of that sin in the person of Jesus. He knew you from eternity. He loved you to the uttermost 
with an everlasting, infinite, unchanging, divine, sovereign, incomprehensible love. He loved you to the uttermost from eternity past. It's it's unfathomable and it's unchangeable. See, because it's eternity past. That's your hope. That's your confidence. That's your assurance. That's your comfort. Both in life and in death. When you need comfort, when you need confidence, when you need hope, when you need joy, you rest yourself in the sure knowledge that the triune God has loved you has decreed since before the foundations of the world to redeem you in a way that no one would ever be able to snatch you out of his hand from eternity past. Comfort and hope in life and death lies in knowing this. 1563, a teaching tool called a catechism was was written for Christians to be able to know their hope and know the truth of their God, called the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful expose of the truth of all that God reveals in his word. I would encourage you to look it up on the internet, Heidelberg Catechism, and read it. Here's how it starts. Just listen to how it starts. It asks questions and then gives answers. And the first question is this, what is your only hope in life and in death? Is it in happy circumstances? Is it in money? Is it in owning property? Is it in retiring well? Is it in nothing bad ever happening to you in this life? Is it that suffering is going to stop? Is it that you're going to live a good enough and worthy enough life? No, no, no. Here's your only hope in life and death. It's in knowing this, that I am not my own but that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. And he also watches over me in such a way that not even a hair can fall from my head without the will of the Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit. And he assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Ancient words, those are words written a long time ago. So that Christians could know and trust and be confident in the love of God for them in Christ Jesus. And so that knowing that they would have great comfort and be strengthened by the great love and by the great grace of Jesus to live for him in the freedom that is yours in him. So let's all pray to him together today. And then let's sing his praises with grateful hearts and and render praise for his amazing grace and then come receive that grace together at the table let's pray our God and our father how grateful we truly are for your grace which is truly amazing how confident we are because of the truthfulness of your word and the veracity with which you have proved it to be true father how grateful we are for Jesus how grateful we are for the 
eternally begotten Son of God, who is God the Son, who came and gave his life for us. Father, help him to be our confidence. Keep our eyes focused on him. Help our hearts to know the great freedom and confidence and joy of what it means to have been loved by him from eternity past and to have been saved by him in history and to be kept by him for eternity future. Father, would you fill our hearts with gratitude and love and praise, the kind which transforms our lives and conforms us more and more to the image of Jesus and robes us more and more in his righteousness. And so, Father, glorify yourself in your church, even as we sing your praises and come to your table, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's stand and let's sing as loudly as we can this morning. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, Psalm 100 said. So if you're a little squeaky, it's okay. Belt it out and sing to God how amazing his grace is.